I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. And he descended to the dead. I love how we began this morning uh, remembering Palm Sunday. This week ahead of us is Holy Week. It's the week that we remember all of these events that led to the cross, from his entrance to Jerusalem to washing the feet of the disciples to praying in Gethsemane to his crucifixion and suffering and his descent to the dead. You know, there's a famous sermon by African-American preacher S.M. Lockridge. And some of you may be familiar with it. It has this recurring line. It's Friday, but Sunday is coming. It's Friday, but Sunday is coming. He says, it's Friday, the disciples are running, but Sunday is coming. It's Friday, Jesus is on the cross, but Sunday is coming. It's Friday, he's buried in the tomb, but Sunday is coming. Right? Over and over again, this refrain repeats. It's a powerful sermon to, to hear. You can listen to recordings of it. You look it up on YouTube or something like that. And, and it has this, this core sentiment that, that gets at the heart of our faith. But this morning, I want to ask a question. What about Saturday? What about Saturday? You see, in much of historic Christian tradition, Easter weekend goes by the name Triduum. All right, that's the Latin word for three days. And it refers to the three days of Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Easter Sunday. Now, we have often gathered together in some form on Good Friday to remember the crucifixion together. We'll do that this week, this, this next Friday. We'll, we'll have a gathering for that. And then, of course, on Easter Sunday, we gather to worship and, and celebrate the resurrection. But between those two days, Saturday stands empty, silent. And I think that this silence is right. I think it's only right. I mean, I don't know about you, but after the somberness of Good Friday, Saturday has always felt a bit like a kind of spiritual, emotional hangover. I, 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 it always still feels somber. I mean, that, that day feels sacred still. I mean, even when I was young, uh, I, I, I remember feeling kind of weird if we had plans on the Saturday between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. I, I, you know, I didn't want to go hide Easter eggs or something like that. Even as a kid, I was like, that, so there's something weighty about this day. 
Something deep in me just wanted to be still on that day. Be silent. Like I said, I think the silence is right because Scripture itself is relatively silent about Holy Saturday. I mean, the Gospels all jump pretty much straight from Jesus being buried in the tomb on Friday evening, and then the next chapter, it's Sunday morning. Right? What, what happens on Saturday? Except for Matthew. Matthew describes the, the Roman guards showing up and being posted outside the tomb on Saturday. But, but there's nothing about what's going on with Jesus as he lays in the tomb. What's going on with the disciples? It's just silence. And even the rest of the New Testament, apart from a couple of obscure passages, uh, which, which we'll take some time to look at this morning, this in-between time of, of between Friday and Sunday, this in-between time of Saturday is, is relatively unspoken of. It's this silent moment. Right? Between the burial and the resurrection, there is silence. And the Apostles' Creed that we've been looking at for all these weeks describes this silence with the phrase, He descended to the dead. He descended to the dead. The, the image that comes to my mind as I, as I hear that phrase is like a leaf finally detaching from its branch and slowly drifting down to the ground where it silently lands. He descended to the dead. And so this morning, I, I want to consider this phrase together and reflect on holy Saturday. And so we'll be looking through a, a couple of different texts together this morning. So instead of reading them now, like we usually do, I'll read them as we get to them uh, and, and dig through it. So for now, let's pray and we'll jump in. Oh Lord, we thank you for Holy Week and for all that you did to rescue the world. God, I pray that as we consider your word this morning, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And so I, I mentioned last week that before I started this series, I posted on Facebook, and I just posted the Apostles' Creed, and I said, hey guys, I'm about to teach through this. What questions do you have? And this line, he descended to the dead, was the very first one that got some attention. People are like, I, what does that mean? I've always been so confused by that line. What's going on here, right? And so as we consider this line together, I, I want to start out with just some, some kind of teaching time. All right, we're going to look at some obscure passages, and I'm not going to be able to tell you exactly what they mean. Uh, but I'll give you some ideas. And, and we'll sort of wrestle through some of these ideas. And once we do that, we'll talk about why does any of this matter? What does this actually mean for us? All right, so, so we'll start with a little bit of history, and then we'll get to the text, and then we'll ask that question, why does this matter? What does this mean for us today? So, some history. He descended to the dead. All right, now historically, this phrase has been very controversial in the creed. 
there are some churches that do use the creed that don't say this line whenever they, they read it uh, because they're just not sure about it. Uh, and one of the reasons that we've already pointed out is because Scripture is relatively silent about this period uh, between Friday and Sunday. Scripture doesn't say much about Saturday, and so many have, included, have concluded that this phrase is either redundant or it's, it's adding something that's not there, that's not necessary. So some just kind of don't say it because of that. Another reason this phrase has been sort of controversial throughout history is because it wasn't actually included in the earliest versions of the creed. And so I've mentioned before, much of the Apostles' Creed that we've been considering dates all the way back to the second century. Uh, that's whenever these phrases, this summary was first put together to sort of instruct new believers after the age of the Apostles. You know, how do we summarize what the Apostles taught? And this was what they came up with. But those earliest centuries of this didn't actually include this line. Uh, it just, you know, went straight from the burial to the third day. Um, and, and once it does appear, uh, it, it, it's kind of the, the fourth century is when it first shows up, right? And so again, that, that's early, but it's later than, than others. So some people look at this and say, Scripture's silence, this kind of relatively late inclusion, we're just not going to, we're not going to worry about that. All right. Uh, one more historical reason why this line has been kind of questionable or controversial is because over the years, it's been inconsistently translated, uh, which means inconsistently understood. So once this line does begin to appear in Christian history, uh, some of them say, uh, I'm going to refer to the Latin version of it. Some versions say he descended to the inferos, is the Latin word. And others say he descended to the infernos, all right? One letter difference, an N, right? Is it inferos or infernos? And that one letter can make quite a bit of a difference. Many of you might be familiar with Dante's Inferno, right? You know, Divine Comedy, maybe you've read that or heard about that. It's this colorful, highly descriptive journey through hell, and it describes the horrors of the nine circles of hell, each one worse than the one before it. And the idea uh, of the word inferno is this. This is inferno. It's, it's hell. It's this place of punishment for those who are condemned. All right? Now, if you take away the N, it's not, not inferno, but inferos, you get a whole different word. But it's not talking about hell. It's just talking about what is below or beneath, what is in the lower regions, the lower places. And, and so much like we would think of a grave or a tomb, right? Something that's just underneath, that's buried, underground. So throughout history, as this line gets translated, some translate inferno, he descended to hell. Others translate inferos, he descended to the dead, to the tomb, to the depths, the, the low places. Now, maybe all of this just seems like semantics to you. What's, what's the point of all of this? But once more, this became truly controversial throughout history, especially because Scripture uses pretty distinct terms to distinguish between death and hell. These things are not interchangeable. And so this this matters. This is, this is different, right? 
And so with all of this controversy, well, why include this line at all? Why, why pay attention to it? What, what's actually happening in history that has this line being spoken? And most likely, the reason for that is to counteract some false teachings that were around in that day. That's what a lot of these lines are about, counteracting false teachings uh, in order to teach what is right and true. Uh, and so once more, I've mentioned before, there were some in those early centuries who didn't really teach that Jesus was fully human. He wasn't really born. He didn't really have a body. He just sort of appeared, just sort of, you know, a spiritual hologram, a spiritual apparition of some kind. And, and there's some that taught, well, he does have a body, but he's not really human, right? It's kind of a, just like a body could be possessed by an evil spirit, Jesus was a body possessed by a divine spirit of some kind. And so the idea was that Jesus was kind of 50-50, 50% human, 50% divine. And, and historic Christian teaching has said, no, Jesus is not 50-50. He's 100% human, 100% divine, right? He is the eternal word that's always existed that becomes flesh to dwell among us. This is who Jesus is. He is God, but he is human with us. And so this idea that Jesus is 50-50 denies his full humanity and also de denies, in many ways, his full divinity. And according to this teaching, well, Jesus didn't really die on the cross, right? His human body suffered, but that divine spirit just sort of hovered around for a while until it came back. And to this false teaching, the creed says, no, he descended to the dead, Jesus really did die. The, the resurrection was not just a, a resuscitation. Uh, the resurrection was not just some sort of divine defibrillator that shocked Jesus back awake. Rather, it truly was death, and it truly was new life, resurrection. He descended to the dead. He really did die. This matters. And I think this is what the, those early uh, Christians were trying to say as they spoke this line. He descended to the dead. So all of these things in mind, kind of this history lesson, what, if anything, does Scripture say about this descent? Well, again, there's a couple of obscure passages that people have pointed to to try to talk about this, try to figure it out. And so let's, let's take a look. The first one I want to consider is from Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. If you want to turn there, you can, or you can just look on the screen. Uh, so Ephesians 4, verses 8 through 10. Paul writes, Therefore it is said, When he ascended on high, he made captivity itself a captive, and he gave gifts to his people. When it says he ascended, well, what does it mean but that he also descended? into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is the same one who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And so in this passage, Paul is quoting from Psalm 68, verse 18. Therefore it is said, 
And he quotes from Psalm 68. And then he offers a comment about this quotation uh, and, and sort of applies it to Jesus. Now, I, I don't know if it's just me, but uh, as, as I read this passage, Paul's quoting of Scripture and commentary on it, instead of making the passage more clear, it feels like he's making this passage much less clear, right? He's not making it more clear. He's making it more confusing. Is, is anyone else with me on that? This, this is a weird passage. What is going on? I'm sure that some of my own preaching has done that from time to time, and I apologize for that. But what's going on here? Well, some say Paul's description of Jesus' descent here is really just referring to the incarnation. What he's saying is Jesus descended by taking on flesh. He lived and he died. This is his descent. And then he ascended in resurrection. That's a legitimate way of reading this passage. But there may be more going on here. After all, it doesn't just say that Jesus descended. It says he descended to the lower parts of the earth. And this is actually the same phrase that appears in the Greek translation of the Apostles' Creed. He descended to the dead, to the depths to the lower parts of the earth. Uh, the, the Latin translation of this passage in Ephesians uses that word we talked about earlier, inferos, the lower parts. Not hell, but the lower regions. And so in this passage, Paul is describing Jesus' descent to the depths. But he really doesn't tell us what actually happens when he descended there. So again, we, we don't really know what's happening on Saturday. What's going on here? What he does tell us is that when he ascended, he made captivity itself a captive. When he ascended, he had gifts to give to his people. This is what Paul is quoting from the psalm, saying this is what Jesus has done. And so, you know, some people will read between the lines and they'll be like, well, you know, he made captivity itself a captive. He came up with gifts to give to his people. So they'll read this and imagine Saturday, Holy Saturday, and Jesus goes down into the depths and they'll imagine him fighting some kind of epic battle in hell, pummeling some demons, you know, taking death captive, all that kind of stuff. And maybe that happened. There's some really great sort of medieval art that depicts that, and it's colorful and interesting, just like Dante's Inferno is colorful and interesting. But Paul doesn't actually say this. Paul's point is simply that Jesus descended, and when he ascended, everything was different. When he ascended, captivity had been made captive, and there is the gift of life to offer to all. So, so this is what Paul is saying, right? It doesn't really fill in the gap much of Holy Saturday. But there is another passage, also equally as obscure, that some think might go into some more detail about this. This one's in 1 Peter chapter 3. Again, if you want, you can turn there or just look up on the screen. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 through 20. This passage reads, 
For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were saved through water. And then if we kept reading the passage, he goes on to kind of apply this idea to baptism and all of that. But in this passage, also kind of obscure, Peter is describing Jesus' death and resurrection, and he's referring to the story of the flood, of Noah, the days of Noah. And once again, this seems to be another instance of making things less clear by comparison rather than more clear. What are you talking about, Peter, right? Was, was he just kind of, maybe he was just kind of a rambling preacher. I mean, we've all experienced that before. Um, again, apologies. Um, but, I mean, at the very least, at the very least, just as Jesus died and rose again, the flood story can be understood as a sort of death and resurrection story about all of creation. And, and so maybe that's some of what Peter is thinking about here. But what's going on with this proclamation to the spirits in prison? Again, it's, it's not really clear. And so some, once again, look at this passage and read it as a description of what Jesus did on Holy Saturday. Right? While his body laid in the tomb, his spirit went down to the realm of the dead and proclaimed the gospel. And some have built entire theories from this verse about how, how this is the way that those who had lived prior to Jesus have a chance to be saved by believing in the gospel. Right? Jesus went and preached the gospel to all those who had gone before. But again, that's kind of reading between the lines. It's not really what it says. That's just maybe a way of understanding it. And you know, a big question for understanding what is meant by proclaiming to the spirits in prison is to back up and ask, well, what does it mean when it says made alive in the spirit? In the verse before. Some understand this as a sort of in-between state. Kind of that 50-50 Jesus, right? His, his body is dead. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So his spirit sort of lingers on during the in-between days. But another, and I think much more clear way of understanding this passage, is that Peter is simply describing Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus was put to death in the flesh, and he was made alive in the spirit. Jesus died, and Jesus rose again. Again, he's describing Friday and Sunday, not Saturday. And if that's the right way to understand this, then that whole proclamation to the spirits thing is not some strange occurrence in the realm of the dead, but rather the resurrected reality of Jesus, risen, ascended, reigning on high, with everything at his feet. And so again... Just like the Ephesians passage, this one doesn't really tell us much 
about what is going on on Saturday, unless we apply some playful imagination, which many have. But it doesn't tell us much. It merely tells us that Jesus' death and resurrection changes things. It it proclaims to those in prison, and it makes captivity captive. This is what the death and the resurrection do. But what about Saturday? And so at this point, you're all probably thinking, Drew, so far you have told us nothing at all. You, You have told us nothing at all. You have done just what Peter and Paul did by making an obscure thing more obscure. And to that, great. You know, that, that's some of the goal this morning, is to enter into this mysterious space of Saturday. Because it's just silence. It's mystery. It's this in-between space. Maybe it's true, you know, maybe just like others, we should just kind of ignore this line and move on. Just kind of skip this descent into the dead uh, kind of move past Saturday because we don't understand it. But I think that sitting with it is important. I think that sitting with the the sort of tension and mystery of Holy Saturday is important. Because even though Scripture is relatively silent about what happened on Saturday, we know that Saturday is there. We know that the story was going on Friday. We know that it picks back up on Sunday. And I think that the silence of Saturday speaks very loudly to us today. I wonder what the disciples experienced on Saturday. What was that day like for them? The gospel accounts don't really tell us, but what it does say is that when Jesus was arrested, they deserted and they fled. They were scattered. They ran away. And the next time we see them, it's Sunday morning. And his disciples are cowering in a room together in fear. What were the hours in between like for them? Fear, shock, uncertainty unknown, dazed. What was that like for them? I'll never forget the 24 hours after my mother died. It was a disorienting time. Myself, Caitlin, my brother, our family just sort of wandered around in a kind of dizzy state for several hours not saying much, not doing much, kind of eating because we knew that we should, but not really feeling hungry. I remember at my mother's bedside, after she passed, my uncle spoke through tears and and a choked up throat. He had just lost his sister, right? And in the years before, he had also lost his brother, his other sister, and his wife. And so this was not new to him. And he just looked at me and my brother, and he said to us, you've got to grieve. You've got to grieve. Make sure that you grieve. 
And he told us that. And so in the hours ahead, we just wandered around quiet, confused, unsure, processing the shock of death and the beginning of grief. I wonder if that's what it was like for the disciples on Saturday. I mean, why does it matter that Jesus descended to the dead? Well, last Sunday, we took some time together during our service to pray for the eight people who descended to the dead after a shooting in the Atlanta area. And again, this past week, 10 more people descended to the dead after another shooting in Boulder, Colorado. Over the past year, more than 2.7 million people have descended to the dead because of the coronavirus and what it has done. I mean, on and on we can go. Death is all around us. We live in a time where there are these two really big realities in front of us. On the one hand, thanks to global news media, we are more aware of suffering and death on a global scale than ever before. I mean, we are aware of suffering in the world more than ever before. But also, on the other hand, thanks to entertainment and, and social media, we are more distracted than ever before. And so we're more aware of all the hard things, and we are more easily able to just ignore all those hard things. Both of these things are true right in front of us. And with these two things, we have not learned how to grieve. We have not learned how to grieve. And in fact, not only have we not learned how to grieve, we have been expertly trained in avoiding grief. The weight of suffering is before us now, perhaps more than ever before, and yet we often respond by dismissing it, by distracting ourselves from it. We turn on the radio or tune in to Netflix or scroll through social media. Anything to not feel the weight of pain. Anything to avoid grief. You see, Holy Saturday matters because I think most of our life is lived in Holy Saturday. Most of our life is lived somewhere in between the pain of death and the waiting and longing for resurrection. And while we are so trained to fill that space with noise, the example of Scripture teaches us silence. It teaches us to sit in all of that. Instead of distraction, dismissal, distancing, Scripture invites us into an open and raw and vulnerable space 
of grief. And we're not comfortable with that. I don't think that we're very comfortable with any of those hard emotions of anger, grief, sadness, loss, frustration. It's so much easier to not engage those things. And maybe many of us have in some ways been taught that it's actually unhealthy to engage those things. Even, even spiritually, you know, we're so quick to rush to Sunday. Sunday's coming, right? Let's get there. Let's go. I think that we would do well to not rush to Sunday. The disciples were disoriented, dazed, and grieving on Saturday. And it's important for us to acknowledge the ways that we too are disoriented, dazed, and grieved at the pain of the world and the pain in our own lives. Why does it matter that Jesus descended to the dead, that he really did die? It matters because it means that there is no realm of human experience untouched by God. There is no realm of human experience that God has not touched and redeemed. I, I think of the, the phrase that's often used to describe Holy Saturdays, the harrowing of hell. You ever heard that before? This idea that Jesus, you know, went down and tore open the, the doors of hell. And again, we don't really know what happened, but I, I actually like that image. Uh, the word harrow is actually, a, it's a noun that just refers to like a, a rake, a, a common garden tool, something that's intended to break up the hard dirt and make it fertile again. Jesus' descent to death means that death is not the end. He's broken up hard soil, and death actually holds some measure of hope for us now because we're waiting for something. We know there's more. And no longer is it just dry, barren soil, but, but death is, Jesus describes, a seed that's planted that will soon sprout up into life and resurrection. Why does it matter that Jesus descended to the dead? It means we can go to those hard places of grief and anger, fear, frustration, and know that God is there with us. Think of the Psalms that we read together this morning. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear because you are with me. He descended to the dead. I, I, could, I could rise up to the heights or I could make my bed in Sheol, the realm of the dead. And even you are there, even there, your presence is, is with me. Jesus descended to the dead. That means it's okay to grieve. It's okay to be angry at the things that are wrong with the world. 
It's okay to sit in those hard things because God is in those hard things. Even in the silence of Holy Saturday, God is present. I think we need that now more than ever. 